Today, we are joined by Colleen Hardwick, who has served in Vancouver City Council since 2018. Colleen is a third-generation city servant and also an entrepreneur, having started New City Productions in 1992, the year I graduated from high school. Although she sold New City in 2000, Colleen maintains an active role in Vancouver's film production industry. I want you to welcome Colleen. Thank you for being on the show. The finances of the city of Vancouver are obviously been under a great deal of strain because of COVID-19. Um, so my first question to you is, how do you feel the city is doing today in managing its finances? Well, I'm deeply concerned about the financial health and well-being of the city, mm -hmm. um, even before the pandemic hit. I mean, with the pandemic hit, we adjusted. Um, there had to be layoffs, of course, that that were done for civic facilities, community centers, libraries, civic theaters, et cetera, to try and stop the bleeding. But there was still a, about a $60 million loss in overall revenue for the year. Um, but my approach would have been, and, and this carrying on into the 2021 budget, is what we need to do is, is to focus on the, the core of what the city's supposed to do. And so what's essential and what's not essential. I've gone through this. I remember back in 2008 when we had the, the crash, so many people had to face the music and go, okay, what is what do I have to do to keep things alive and running? And what is non-essential that I can push out to a later date? Mm -hmm. And so the city has structured its budget in such a way that it, it does recognize the core services, but then it breaks out segments, including it just broadly um, climate change, social issues, economic development and affordable housing. And each one of those categories comes with it various different um, plans and, and programs that are funded out of the capital budget as opposed to the operating budget, ultimately. Mm -hmm. And so what I would have done was look at those council priority areas and say, where can we cut back? Where can we push out? But what came back rather was, no, these are all essential. These are all core. So we'll just take one to 2% off of everything, which to me was unfathomable. You know, on the funding side, and again, we've seen a precipitous increase in our property taxes over the last number of years. Sure we have, yeah, it's been I big actually, news. It's, it's uh, again, maybe we need to ste step back for a minute and differentiate between the operating budget and the capital budget. Sure, let's do that to simplify this for the listeners. Yeah, I don't, I, think, I don't know that everybody understands that the operating budget... The city councillors do, right? They do now. <laughs> Did um, you give a tutorial? The operating budget is, you know, the operations of the city yeah. versus the capital budget, which are, are projects and, and programs yeah. that are... that can be standalone or they can be on, going on for many years. Sure. So historically, and this is the same in, in any municipal government, the, the operations are paid for out of property taxes and user fees. And you can mm -hmm. project, you know, we're going to be able to, you know, have this to cover mostly payroll. You know, HR is the biggest component. Yeah. But we've got 10,000 plus employees. So it's a big, big component. Yeah, sure is. Then the capital budget is a different animal. The capital budget historically was funded out of debt. You have a plebiscite to determine whether you can go and buy, borrow $100 million or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, years ago, when the city wanted, for example, to rebuild the Canby Bridge, I think in 86, when Mike Harcourt was mayor, um, they they had a plebiscite out to the, the electorate to say, are you willing to take on this big bunch of debt to rebuild the bridge? And the answer was yes. Uh, and that was that was a bit of an aberration. Most of the time, it's just on the back of the ballot. So look at the next time you go and vote, you see all the names that you're voting for, for you know mayor and council, school and park. On the back is that, that uh, plebiscite that says, is it okay, we, we borrow a quarter billion dollars? Anyhow, it's the the uh, the borrowing capacity and debenture borrowing that has always been uh, the principal funding source for the capital budget. Mm -hmm. But going back to 2009, again, when Vision got in, they did uh, at the time what was called a core services review, which restructured the really the business of the city. And one of the things that came out of that was the uh, the move to regularize CACs or community amenity contributions as a revenue line item. 
Now, CACs had been invented earlier on. Um, I, th I, I think Larry Beasley, a former director of planning, uh, was really the one that invented it in its, in its Vancouver form. But it was always site specific. So if you're going to go in and build a big development, you're going to the city's going to take a piece of the the profit, the vig, and that will be put into specific community amenities in that area. But in doing this, what they they did instead was regularized it. So when they started to re, to look at rezoning large swaths of the city, like the Canby Corridor and Oak Ridge, they could point to that and go, oh. Well, we can, we project that we can make X amount of money out of this if we get so much uptake from the developers to build all this stuff. Right. So wouldn't this have also happened uh, uh, with with Concord Pacific and the amount of all the land they had through Yaletown about twenty years ago? No, they did. They had not. They didn't regularize the CACs until two thousand nine. Oh, okay, okay, it, sorry. It was still. I mean, they were doing CACs, but they were not just. They were not a revenue stream that had been regularized. Okay. So then what we saw was um, our revenue project projections. You're, you're putting together a business plan. This is a business audience. Yeah. They'll understand this. So you're building out your plan. You know, we've got operating is covered off and that's got a balance that's laid out under the Vancouver Charter out of our, our uh, property taxes, user fees. And then instead of just using debenture borrowing with there's other forms of developer contributions like DCLs. Now you've created a revenue stream that you're relying on every year after year. And so I'm putting out my projections, one year, five year, 10 year projections, and looking at how much revenue I figure, if I'm the city, I can generate out of CACs. And it's a big number. It started small enough, but it grew up. So, so in, the, in the budget we just approved, Yeah. Um, there was $118.6 million of debenture borrowing, and there was $111.5 million out of uh, developer contributions. Well, they're almost the same. So they, this is how they doubled the budget. So this is how... So this all is, of Doesn't this, this kind of align, like, doesn't this kind of make the city uh, a little bit um, at the, like, to the, their to the mercy of the developers? I mean, when develop- Of course, so because then you're- I mean, so you need the, they, based on what you described to me, Colleen, it would have seemed to me logically that you're now really becoming quite dependent on the developers continuing to build in order to continue to keep that cash flow going. Have I got that right? Absolutely. Now, that was all going great up until 2016. If you look at 2016, you look at the CMHC numbers, Canada Mortgage and Housing, there was, about 9,800 building starts in a single year when the population increased mm -hmm. by maybe 5,500, 6,000 people. And you calculate household based on 2.2 people per dwelling unit. Mm -hmm. So why would you be billing, building having housing starts triple population growth, mm -hmm. which begs the larger question about the Housing Vancouver strategy and its targets which have been admittedly based on aspiration as opposed to evidence mm -hmm. but well i'll tell you what let's you're right about want, that in, in that that it has created an addiction but the problem now is that the market is bottomed out and the developers are not coming up with the cac money sure anymore oh interesting so there's a there's a revenue hole so they've been looking for a way to fill that revenue gap we always hear lots of talk about oh let's find new revenue streams well would now be the time maybe to switch back to doing more debt issuances since interest rates are so low to make up for that difference um possibly but we could also be looking again at the considerable expansion of the city mm -hmm. since 2011 <clears throat> or 2016 i think it was at by Last the way, I should sorry to interrupt. I should point out I'm not endorsing the idea of taking on more debt. I'm a city of <laughs> taxpayer, and I very I very much support fiscal responsibility. And that doesn't come through just but issuing this more is debt. why we have to look at all of, all of this expansion because since 2016 there was over 1100 I think 1119 new full time employees. Right. The the headcount has been increasing precipitously. Mm -hmm. And you can look at the departments. The planning department's doubled its headcount. Right. Engineering, ACCS, which is arts, culture, community services, which also includes the affordable housing portfolio. Um, so I've just seen- It's turned into a monster. It's of a, a of massive amount of expansion. And uh, not just 
in the in the union tra trades in in the what's called the exempt staff, which are the non-union staff, which is primarily where the management mm -hmm. uh, group live. So I again, it's not just about looking at it, where the money's coming from; it's what we're spending it on and why we're out of balance. Right. Is it fair to say that the city of Vancouver's um, expansion of its uh, of its city staff and how they spend and how much they spend is out uh, out uh, performing inflation? Oh heavens, yes. Okay. So how do you reverse that? What do, what do we need to see happen in the city of Vancouver? Do we need to see basically get to a point where taxation becomes so onerous that people just stop? pain or they do people start moving out like people how, what do you are, have been moving out and yeah. again uh, like, I, we have to take a long hard look at our policies i mean one of the frustrations that i have is i go into public hearings and i see constant rezonings coming down the pipe and i know exactly what's going on um uh, and each one of those presentations that staff gives they will go back and they will come up with a list of of uh, th events that have taken place as justification precedents like, and they use the housing Vancouver strategy and its targets as precedents for all of these decisions that we're making so when we know we have a fundamentally flawed policy that is exacerbating the problem through increasing inflationary land lift then um, we should be then we should not be making decisions on it the council continues to make again decisions public hearing after public hearing based on policies that are fundamentally flawed. Mm -hmm. So how would you change it? Well, we got to get in there and do a proper analysis of it. This is why I put forward the recalibrating housing Vancouver strategy post COVID-19 motion, wherein um, we instructed staff to provide um, a broad spectrum of data on housing, secondary housing. We don't know how many uh, secondary housing units there are everything from duplexes to basement suites to room what was what's secondary housing would it define That's, that for me well so as opposed to a purpose-built rental which would be an apartment building yes secondary rental would be that basement suite okay that gotcha. rooming house that you know mm -hmm. even that single family dwelling that's being rented out right so um we know that the city has a lot of that data they may not have the illegal basement suites but they've got you know they've got a lot of that data and, and they have told us they have it but they haven't provided it another area is zoned capacity if you can imagine, uh, think of the a map of the city, and then you take plexiglass. We all know what plexiglass looks like now. Yeah. <laughs> and we imagine what that would look like according to the zoning on all of that property. Um, so we got a piece of property here. We, if it's zoned a certain way, we can go up, you know, to this height and massing. Um, if we look at that across the city, we can get a pretty good understanding of how much capacity there is to upzone to build additional housing, for example. Well, then why have, is that information not being provided, especially when I see us constantly spot zoning um, and, and perhaps strategically or perhaps not. But uh, I just don't think that, first of all, we never received the data that was requested in that memo. It was supposed to have been uh, received by the end of July. Why is it not being received? Well, that's a very good question. I've asked that on the record multiple times um, because Are you I, the only one asking? Uh, I'm the only councillor that's asking, although the, all of the council uh, voted uh, in favor of the motion or the mayor and one abstained, interestingly enough. Um, I have pressed and pressed on this issue and I have not gotten satisfaction on it. I can also tell you that I had um, arranged a, um, a 90 minute zoom call back in may with a number of my academic colleagues with city staff on this issue and was assured that the data would be made available in detail and it and wasn't it, and it hasn't been and all i can ask is why not why what are we not supposed to see what's the problem with the city staff in vancouver it seems to me just based on what i'm hearing from you and i'm hearing from a lot of other people who have to deal with them either on the private sector side or other people in your role and other city councillors, you know, off camera, that there seems to be a real chronic problem with what's going on with city staff. And I don't know if it's at the grassroots level or if it's more higher up, there's a cultural shift that occurred or oh, didn't yeah. occur. What's going on here? Well, again, um, having been a 
you know I was a kid when my dad was first elected to city council, so I mm -hmm. kind of grew up around the hall. And yeah, I've sure. watched all these changes ongoing over the decades. And um, I was involved with the city up until 2008. I sat on the city's development permit board, uh, for example. And in the 2008 election, when Gregor Robertson and Vision got in, the first thing they did was they fired the longtime city manager who'd worked for the city for 25 years, 10 years as city manager, served under five mayors and council, and was a, an, you know, a civil servant, apolitical. And Vision had their vision that they wanted... Just to be clear, what you said is apolitical. Apolitical, meaning, meaning, meaning non not, not partisan, yeah. like belonging to a yeah. party or any yeah. particular ideology. Okay. So um, what happened, though, was when Vision got in, they had their vision that they wanted to implement. So they fired the city manager, and they brought in uh, Penny Ballum was the person that they brought in to be the city manager and tasked her um, with restructuring the city. And they did what was called a core services review, where they went basically department by department. It, you know, others might call it a coup d'etat. All the heads of department either jumped or were pushed because of the restructuring, um, the report twos were interrupted, uh, and uh, succession planning. So the end result at the end of the decade was a complete loss of institutional memory. And some would argue that that was intentional. So in, in large part, then um, there was certainly the mood, whether it will be well received or not, the, the attitude around town was locals need not apply when it came to anything to do with the senior jobs in the city, as we saw in large part hiring coming from Chicago, New sure. York, San Francisco. Well, who's Dallas. our city manager today? Well, we have an acting city manager now that uh, Sidhu Johnson resigned, left at the, the first week in, in January. And uh, How long was Sidhu Johnson in, role in this position for? He was in that position, I think, for four or five years, but where, he was there he from 11, from? Chicago. He was brought in. He was recruited and brought in? Yeah. Because we couldn't find the talent in Vancouver? No, because it was a political appointment. Right. So we have an acting city manager right now? We do, and we're going through a recruitment process currently. Who makes that call on who our city manager is going to be? Presumably council. The um, decision is finally made. And we got a new city council, uh, city manager. How how um, how powerful or how influential is a city manager? Just a very influential. But let's talk about what the job is. I mean, when yeah. w the recruitment firm that that was engaged came to count each of the councillors individually and asked them what they thought we should be looking for in a city manager, and I said, you know, someone that knows how to manage a city. <laughs> You know, presumably somewhat, maybe they went to university and did a public administration degree. Um, maybe they've been a city manager right. in another jurisdiction or a deputy that has moved sure. up. You know, someone that has credentials and track record. Yeah, pretty straightforward. But that's not, that's certainly not uh, the majority view on council. So, so there's going to be a short list of people. Yeah. They're going to be presented to city council and mayor. Yeah. And then the, the, how does it work? They, you guys, you all vote? And, yeah. Okay. What, do, do you know where we're at in this process? Is it getting yeah, close to? Yeah, yeah, it'll be coming up in the next month and it, it, it's intensifying. I can't give yeah, yeah, you know, first you can't detail, but it's, details, it, but it's heavily in process right now. But if you had to pin a date down on when you think we can see a final you know, announcement and find out who this new city manager is. By the end of Q1. Okay. And then just again, to recap, the city manager has a lot of influence. They're, they're, they're kind of like the CEO, so to speak. Yeah. Um, yeah. If, if you're the, the board C of it's directors. It's the CAO is CAO. more like, more, you know, because we are talking about public administration, which is fundamentally different than running a private corporation. Mm -hmm. Is the city manager and CAO different people? Different no, same. Roles? It's the same. Yeah. In any other municipality, they refer to the CAO. Oh, okay. This is a holdover from... Okay, so what we call in Vancouver a city manager, another municipality we call a CAO. In, in many, yes. In many. Okay, okay. Let's. This is really interesting. I'm not lecturing too much. No, not at all. I like this. I'm learning a lot. Let's talk about the Auditor General motion, mm -hmm. September 27th, 2019. You you put in place a motion, a first motion, establishing an independent 
Auditor General Office for the City of Vancouver. Now, you're right. A lot of our listeners are pretty plugged in financially, but they're not necessarily political. So first question for you is, what is an Auditor General and what do they do? Good question. It's important that people understand the different types of audit functions. Mm-hmm. You know, anybody that runs a business has an auditor. Um, you know, you've got your your internal audit, and then at the year year end, you go out to KPMG or Ernst and Young or PwC, whoever that uh, will then do your external audit. And what they're really doing is making sure the numbers add up. So then you can report that back to the board. Numbers add up. We're good. The Auditor General is a different cr- creature. The, the Auditor General acts as independent oversight over staff in this case and reports ultimately directly to council. And their job is performance audit or value for money audit. So if a project is being undertaken, they're going to look at it and say, is this good value for our money? And there's many examples uh, across the country because every other major Canadian city has an auditor general and has for years. Um, in the province of Quebec, for example, any any city with a population over 100,000 is required by law, provincial statute, to have an auditor general. Very Vancouver has never had one? Never. Never. It's And, the, and there are none in, Brit- in British Columbia. I'm actually hoping that once we get this started in uh, Vancouver, that this can be broadened. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I look at the city of Toronto, which is a metro metropolitan region as opposed to just a, a single unit like the city of Vancouver is. So mm-hmm. I'd like to see this applied at metro Vancouver level and the larger municipalities. Certainly municipalities, when you're getting into half a million people, it's and, and the budgets are north of half a million dollars, or sorry, half a billion dollars, um, then you need to start thinking about it. But there's just so many examples. What's Vancouver's operating budget annually? If I can... Uh, Well, the total budget's a billion and a half, so... Okay, so billion and a half. Yeah, and it's doubled. We've seen property taxes on residents, uh, residential uh, homeowners Mm -hmm. in Vancouver go up by 3% this year. We got that right? No, it was 7% and then 5%. It's 5%. 5%. Yeah. So we have a billion and a half dollar operating budget. Five to seven. Sorry. I'm sorry. I I haven't got the split between operating and and the capital separate separate in my mind. No no problem. So I'm just going back. Let's combine them both. Yeah. So that's the billion. We we got billion billion and a half. Yeah. And we don't have one person and never have had one person as an independent auditor to review certain activities going on within those operations of our city to to check and see how we're doing financially? No, we have an internal audit division that is doing internal audits, but they are ultimately um, answering to the city management team. So that's not independent? It's not independent. No. And so this is is really key. the so what's it going to take element. to get an auditor general in Vancouver? What do well, we need to see happen? Okay, well, so we had the first motion, which passed in uh, October of 2019. Got We managed to get half a million dollars in the 2020 budget that we didn't spend, but we did uh, get the Canadian Audit and Accountability Foundation to come in and, and write a report with recommendations with a pathway that we're following to getting this office in place. The stage we're at right now, the bylaw was was approved, um, and we've created two committees, the Auditor General Committee and the Recruitment Committee. I'm chairing the Recruitment Committee, and we're now very much in the thick of looking for the person. My dream is that that person is identified and uh, by the end of the quarter, by the okay. end of March. Okay. So if we do that, and we have now an Auditor General, new city manager, the Auditor General... It reports directly to city council. They're independent. Um, how how what kind of how do they get direction? Like who gets to say what's the first thing they they start follow to- their nose. Oh, cool. Many this of the people is, that agree, are in these great. jobs, they they're triple threats. They're lawyers, accountants, auditors. I they're people auditor that have general. a broad um, <laughs> set of. Can I put my name um, in still? Back- I don't know. Um, we haven't sh- we haven't selected I'm their recruitment I'm firm gonna, yet. I'm definitely going to call the auditor general once you hire them. I'll give them lots of things, leads. Well, they will do, I mean, One of the leads in I Toronto, have right here is they do, you know, they have hotlines for fraud and waste and yeah. things of that nature. 
well, I'm going to kind of skip to this right now. Transparency in government. You know, I, I put a request in to the city of Vancouver's uh, through their FOI freedom information request because what blows me away is that um, the only time you get to see the city of Vancouver's investment portfolio is a two-line item on cash and cash equivalents and short-term investments on the annual financial statement, mm -hmm. statement of financial information, yes, statement of financial information. Um, what you see in April, and it's for December 31st of the previous year. So I put a request in to get a copy of the investment portfolio, and they want to charge me $180 for this. Revenue streams. Yes. Well, this one, this gets better. So then I also uh, asked about, because I got a little tip that uh, the city of Vancouver has been accepting or was accepting cash, physical, hard $20 bills cash, um, for property taxes, for empty homes tax, uh, fines. I mean, basically, you walk in with a bag of cash. So not anymore. Not any, no, not anymore. But you did, and so I, I Be, want to. Before our time, again, yes. this would I would think this would have again twenty. My read of the situation, twenty sixteen was the top of the gold rush. Yes. Well, this is under Gregor Robertson. Oh yeah. Yeah, but I so the city. I've asked the city to give me a summary in the last ten eight to ten years of. How much money has been paid in physical hard cash? I mean, when I talk about money laundering, potential money laundering leads, you know, I would think that someone who's walking into City Hall and paying $20,000, $30,000 in property taxes and cash, we should probably look into why they were paying that in cash. So there was a motion brought forward by this council to prevent cash payment. Yes. Just so you know. Yes. Um, but so I can't really comment on what happened before we got there. I mean, the, uh, no, and that's what, you, what I'm trying to get to, Colleen. What I'm trying yeah. to get to. No, I know, I know that your council has brought that motion forward to not allow that anymore. In fact, I, so as far as I know from talking to uh, Rebecca Bly, it isn't permitted anymore without yeah. without proper uh, documentation, mm -hmm. like any financial institution would have to do under FINRA rules or FinTrack rules. Excuse me. Right. But what amazes me is the city wants to charge me nine hundred and sixty dollars to get this information. But I think like the the public should know. Should we not? Should we not know back in before your time, but in 2017 or 2016, if somebody walked into the city hall in Vancouver and paid their property taxes, $30,000 and $20 bills, shouldn't we be finding out who that person was and go back and investigate? Well, shouldn't the Cullen Commission be asking those questions? Well, they probably should, but this is city of Vancouver. So, I mean, it's on the, maybe it should be both. Yeah. Um I can't specifically comment on that. I, I'm certainly not happy with the, the FOI system that the city has put in mm. place. Why are you not I, happy with it? Because I think it's been weaponized. Mm. Like I'm doing? And others. <laughs> Isn't this about transparency, though? Let's jump to that topic. I mean, in my view, shouldn't I, why should I have to pay $180 to see the city of Vancouver's financial? I mean, I'm a taxpayer here. I live here. Shouldn't I have the ability? I mean, there's lots of very smart financial people in the city. Shouldn't we be able to see at a more granular level than two line items? One says cash, one says short-term investments as to what the city actually owns? I'm not de debating the appropriateness of what you're describing. I'm, yeah. just, I'm just, you know, real, recognizing what the situation is at the hall. Yeah. You know, there may be an internal justification like you've got to generate enough revenue out of your FOI activities to pay for you know, maybe some extra staff. I don't right. know. Yeah. I'd have to drill into that one in particular. But I, I you know, But you're I not happy with of, the FOI system. No, I'm not. Because it's, it's, you feel like it's being used as a weapon yeah. with the media. And, and yeah. others. I mean, I've, again, I, it's a tricky subject area sure. because there's things that I can't talk about. Uh, well, let's talk about transparency in municipal government. Do you, do you feel there's enough transparency within our city of Vancouver? No, I don't. I feel that we're being uh, controlled, and I'm sure it'll get in a lot of trouble for this. But, um, you know, I I have to watch what I'm saying all the time for fear of, you know, tripping up and having it weaponized against you. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, because of that, I'm careful. Well, I, fair, I think that's fair enough. Um, I guess, wouldn't it be fair to say, though, that if, and this, the code of conduct. I mean, there's yeah. a reason for this because, again, this code of conduct that is we just um, voted on replacing it and bringing in a new bylaw. But um, 
the code of conduct that has operated since 2008 and was you know, rejigged a bit in 2011 has um, had a, a big effect on council uh, committees and to a, a lesser degree staff and their ability to say boo. Sure. Well, I think it's I think it's fair to. Exp I mean, I'm a reasonable person. I got I got to appreciate that there are times in which you, other city council and mayor, are in a position where you can't disclose information. It's, it's confidential. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about debate. I'm talking about being able to to have critical debate. Sure. And when you can't have critical debate without someone, you know, taking exception to words. If I, um, I'll try and find an example here. If you say, um, I don't think you're hearing me, and someone then turns around and says that, oh, you're saying that staff aren't listening to your direction. You know, it's a twisting of words. Mm. And um, because you, it's just made it, I'm not talking about ad hominem attacks, calling people names, hurting people's feelings. Um, it, but it, there's such a sensitivity. It's, it's couched under respect, and you can't, but it is possible to have respectful debate. Absolutely. And um, it happens in business every day, all day long. It happens in business every day. And it used to happen in city council. But again, this comes back to the culture. You know, and I, I'm... Well, doesn't I'm culture start at the top? Oh, very much so. Mm -hmm. But again, it's... I mean, that's it, Here's another example, though. It used to be that the, the corporate management team, the CMT, the city manager and general managers were at the top of the food chain. Now... They call it the CLT, this uh, the corporate leadership team. So it's about the the perception now is that the staff is leading the city, and it's an American model, really, mm -hmm. where council have become really the board of directors that are there to to uh, you know respond to what staff is bringing forward. Mm -hmm. So as far again, I, I just point this out as a larger cultural issue that I see at the city. Um, and I hear I, I sit in briefings all the time and I just hear about the cult culture of the city. And I'm going, why are we talking about this? Why are we not talking about the things that local governments are supposed to be focused on? Mm -hmm. It's just a you know, larger social agenda and, and mm -hmm. things that belong to senior levels of government that, you know, social change. Sure. And I'm coming back to, okay, yeah, but our job is to manage mm -hmm. the land within our boundaries. I mean, I guess people that are on the opposite side of where you sit would say, would argue, well, Colleen, you know, we do need to make social change and we have to do it at the federal, provincial and local levels. There's people who've been marginalized. Um, it's not just about the land, but the people who within live within the land or in my earlier comment, people who, you know, drive into this area and work here all day and spend their money and, you know, maybe even raise their kids or they drop them off at a school. So, um, but I don't see that as being contradictory. Because well, look, if, the federal if, if, the federal government if, has the let's ability. Let's use climate change as an example. So, what? the federal government, which yeah. covers all of Canada, has the ability to tax people, if for income tax and a variety of taxes, all the way across the country. Mm -hmm. We just have this little piece of land that we can extract whatever cash we can. And again, I will argue that the reason it's so expensive here to live is because we've overburdened. The amount of money we're trying to extract from this little piece of land sure and so a lot of these things so it, whether it's climate change social issues economic development affordable housing these are all ultimately about land and money in the way that they're expressed within our boundaries mm -hmm. and so um naturally we they the the problems that we have play out on our land but we still are uh, we can't say that we're going to take on the responsibility of the federal government or the provincial government and and download that cost onto this small piece of land. It's just not. I see. It's it's not possible, and it just so to get granular. Balance. If we talk about something like climate change, what you're saying is, well, we can be supportive of uh, policies or or initiatives that support addressing climate change. What you're saying is that from a financial perspective we shouldn't be carrying the burden to cover that cost is that what you're trying to say yeah well let's look at the climate emergency action plan that was passed by council re recently the 371 page document and if you 
get to the crux I'm not familiar of it. with it. <laughs> oh, really? Well, it's document. the one that's now requiring um, citywide paid parking and congestion pricing in the downtown core. So, um, but at the heart of the document is a half a billion dollar price tag. Hmm. So the question then becomes, uh, is it right to download the half a billion dollars worth? They're looking for revenue out of, again, this little piece of land sure. to the tune of half a billion dollars that is supposedly going to move the needle on climate change, mm -hmm. except for it's not. It's, it's you know, the evidence yeah. doesn't support it. And then they'll say, yeah, but we then, then we're giving the leadership that other to other cities will follow our leadership and that's the way that we're going to get cities around the world right to to join in fighting climate change that right. is the the counter argument so it's worth downloading you know half a billion dollars worth of of revenue out of this piece of land whether people are living or working here mm -hmm. to in their view give this kind of climate leadership mm -hmm. that's the logic mm -hmm. interesting okay it's good perspective um, on the co topic of culture, community, I want to talk about the City of Vancouver's grant program, which you enlightened me on. I had no idea about this until literally about a month and a half ago when you know, I first, second time we spoke. The City of Vancouver in 2019, because so we don't have 2020 financial data out yet. Of course, if City of Vancouver were a publicly traded company, we'd be seeing financials every single quarter. Yeah. But I still got to wait till April of this year just to see what the City of Vancouver spent in January of last year. So 2019, City of Vancouver issued $41.2 million in grants. So here's the breakdown. 32% or $13 million was paid to business improvement associations, like the Downtown Business uh, Vancouver um, Association, yep. as an example. 29% were cultural grants, that's $12 million. 22% were community grants, that's $9 million. Another 11% were to just what are called other grants, $4.7 million. And then childcare grants were the smallest at $2.5 million or 6%. And I've got the list here and it's a pretty long list. And it's amazing to me, some of the names I see in here. Um, do you have any perspective or comment on these grants well it's just illustrative of what I'm trying to to get across here and that is the the massive scope creep that the city has experienced over the last decade plus so you're just looking at a snapshot of it today if you were to plot that over a decade and yeah. and demonstrate how these areas of the budget have ballooned that again tie back to the culture of the organization that I'm describing because the, that's how everything is justified right um, but then we then we um, make uh, money available to organizations that then turn a, a around and lobby us for you know for whatever area they're involved with. Um, you know we've seen this, for example, with the bike lobby that you know variety because again going back to vision the bike lanes it was a huge part of their their vision. And so a lot of money has been uh, given to various different organizations in the in the, the the bike lobby world. Well, then they turn around and lobby the city back. Um, we've seen this in so many. Uh, another recent one that we got was the defund the police, and there was a big list of organizations that we kept seeing in all of the different correspondence that we were receiving, and all of the scripts of the speakers that were were speaking to us in public hearing over and over again. And so I put that message back to the city manager, and I said, All right, "Here's the list of these organizations. Is the city of Vancouver?" Um, giving grants to any of these or funding any of these? What was the and, answer? Well, yeah. So I got a spreadsheet back that showed all of the money. So here it is, organizations that are coming to us for grant money. Yeah. And then they're turning around and and uh, lobbying us to support to whatever the whatever yeah. it is. Whatever it could is. be. It could be. I should point out a, a broad I should point out spectrum something. of of different applications. I should point out something for the listeners. Thanks for that, by the way. I should point out something for the listeners. The city of Vancouver, in their budget, um, effectively defunded the police by stating that they would not increase the city's city police budget. And it's it's as I forgot that right. It's it's flatlined with where their budget with the mm -hmm. allocation they were being given from previous year. 
By contrast, they approved for the next four or five years a 2 to 3% increase of these grants. And I believe, if I recall, the NPA, which you're one of the members, did all, you were the only ones that didn't approve the, the budget That's proposal. That's correct. Mm -hmm. I think there was a lot said, more reason to it than, than just, just those, that. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, the city, if you know that the, the property tax increase is going to be 5%, mm -hmm. it would have been 12%, except for the city was offsetting 57 with $57 million of our reserves. Did you know that? No. Okay, so it's actually a 12% increase, but we're only seeing 5% of it. Because they're pulling money out of the money out of the reserves. Fifty-seven million dollars out of reserves, on top of I think the thirty-four million out of reserves from last year, mm -hmm. which is concerning because you don't spend your reserves up front in any business I've ever been well, involved. Well, I mean, with. to use that in a layman's term, it's like uh, dipping into your savings because you didn't make enough money that year to cover your expenses. That that doesn't last very long. No, but there was there was an unwillingness to to cut. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the, that, no, that's that, the that is thing essentially, I think, I think, they don't want to That's the to thing cut. that sh shocks me is that why, why, why is it so tough for whether it's, I don't know if it's this, if this is politicians or, or city staff to just come to terms with the fact that just like any business or individual who has a, a shock because of a pandemic like we've had and they've lost their job or they've had a drop in their income or their revenue and they got a cut. And I don't understand like- the, Staff got raises. Staff got raises. Staff got raises. Exempt sta staff got raises. The uh, the unions are in holding pattern. Um, exempt staff are basically the high paid people, right? They're the ones that are at the they, top of the food they're chain. They're the non union. Yeah. yeah, they certainly management would fall in. And there's there again, also, there's about twelve hundred. They also get staff. pensions, don't they? Yeah. Pretty pretty juicy pensions. I, I again, you count there was uh, lots of outcry out there. Oh, council of all, uh, you know, they're taking a ten percent pay cut. Yeah. Um, and again, anybody in their right mind would want one of these jobs. Uh, anyhow, in I think it's important for people to know that you as a city councillor, which your compensation is probably, I don't know, what, what do you get? The base is 86000 yeah. So just to make sure people understand, the, the, the amount that a city councillor makes is a fraction of what, say, the city manager. The, the city manager was finance. making 359000 and that's not the only role that makes a uh, six-figure income. I mean, there's oh, lots. Oh, certainly of, not. No, of the exempt and you staff, don't get a pension which there's either. about twelve hundred. The mean the mean salary of the twelve hundred exempt staff is one hundred and ten thousand. Most, most of them make more than GP. So plus a pension, and you don't get a pension. Um, not yet. Anyway, I think <laughs> maybe if you're there for a decade, maybe I, I don't. I'm not sure. That's really my, not what my motivation was to get in there. I know the uh, I know the NPA is coming under a lot of uh, bad press recently. The thing that I find, for un in my view, and I'm so not even going to get into it because I think it's pretty unjustified. But the thing I fi find interesting that people have forgotten about: how many men um, represent the NPA in the city of Vancouver today? How many men? Yeah, how many men from uh, the NPA were elected onto city council? None. Exactly. Yeah. It's all women, right? Yeah. Pretty progressive, in my view. Oh yeah, it's it's kind of interesting uh, how how the that shifted over time. This may be an aberration, but mm -hmm. we'll see. Yeah, um, Colleen, to wrap this up, I want to go back to housing. I want to talk about a particular topic that's um, close to my home, which is Jericho Hostel. Mm -hmm. um, there are two sites that the city of Vancouver is looking at as a, I guess a in-term venue or location to house people who are homeless. Of course, we know this big problem we have at um, Strathcona Park. Mm -hmm. So the two locations are uh, an address on Kingsway. 2400. 2400 Kingsway. Was a, it, it's a motel, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, I'm sure you've seen it a million times. Yeah, it's got that sign. Fluorescent, yeah. yeah. Um, the, uh, and, and then there's Jericho Hostel, yeah. which is in West, West Point Gray. And it's just across the street from West Point Gray Community Center, Aberthau. Yeah, my all my children have I gone. Know it to, well. Yeah, you know it well. Can you give me your comments on thoughts on Jericho Hostel? Well, generally, um, I would be handling the situation with Strathcona Park differently if I was the person that was trying to solve that problem. I don't feel like I have the ability 
realistically um, on council to be, I can't act unilaterally and try and fix it. Um, but what should be done is to get in there and uh, first of all, understand who's there. There has to be a triage. How many people are there? What's the breakdown, you know, of demographically, men, women, age groups? What about, you know, how many people have, you know, addiction or mental health problems? How many people are ju have just been socioeconomically impoverished? You know, they've lost their job. Maybe they were couch surfing. Now they're living in a tent. Because there is no, there's no homogeneity, homogeneity there. Every everything is is a mixture of different kinds of people. So what you need to do is figure out what path those different people need to get into a, a roof over their head, food in their stomach, and then hopefully recovery or um, reintegration into society. And the big concern is that I've, I have not seen that happening. I, I think city staff are afraid to go into the park. I think the activists in the park really are controlling the show. But, but what needs to happen is to figure out where people need to go based on who they are. There, um, and there's not just the 2400 in Jericho. The city has other places, the, you know, the Army and Navy building. There's other places around the city that are being examined, and they need to be looked at at a granular level of who needs to go where. Mm -hmm. So Jericho's in a unique position. Obviously, the, ne the, the locals are worried that we're going to end up with a, the same kind of problem with, you know, drug addiction and needles and all the, the horror stories they're hearing across the city, that that's going to end up in their backyard. Mm -hmm. um, I look at Jericho as, as being probably a place that would be more suitable for seniors um, and people that are of lower risk. There's no stores around there. There's no transit. There's no support yeah, system. There's really not, nothing there. And yeah. that's a real problem. Uh, for many people, so you you have to go and figure out how many people are we talking about here? Are we talking about twenty people? Are we talking about fifty people? And what are the characteristics that that we think is going to make them the least, you know, the least challenged at that location? The the Jericho Hostel, I think back to you know when I was a teenager, I worked at at uh, at uh, the forum there. At, 1976 i guess it was habitat forum which was a big thing and after that there was a there was a bunch of squatters out there and activists ironically in jericho this is going back to the 70s eventually it got cleared out but it's kind of a, a weird cycle of seeing some of that activity go back into jericho mm -hmm. but i think overall um it's a painful situation everybody's afraid of doing the wrong thing um you know for fear of being you know, called it suggested that they're unsympathetic to the problems that are yeah, before call, us. Called, called not in my backyard, Nim, NIMBYs, I think is a big fear of a lot of the residents in that area that they're being pegged as that. Um, Everybody the, cares the about thing? where they live. But so what I'm really trying to get across yeah. is it's a nuanced process that has to be carefully managed. And, and I'm sure that there's people that can be staying there that are not, that sure. are, are, are going to be okay for the neighborhood and that's something that the city has to pledge to its residents because ultimately it yeah you know we represent you the residents in that area who i've had a lot of conversations with about this and, and i live in that area they one of the big concerns is that city staff without the direction or input from either council or from the local community are just going to jam a bunch of people in there without thinking this through uh, is that a valid concern you know i may have my criticisms but i don't think that that is an accurate expectation okay i do think that well, there is some care being given here I, th I have larger concerns about how this this file is being handled generally i um and i and i do point to the senior levels of government as really they need to step up this is their, the feds in particular yeah, sure um it's not the job the city again we have limited resources mm -hmm. and uh, you know we can only extract Blood, so much blood from the stone, you yeah. know. Colleen, to, to finish this on a lighter note, <laughs> your husband is a fairly uh, well-accomplished actor. Yep. Have I got that right? <laughs> and I understand he is the voice of Optimus Prime. Yes. This was like my favorite cartoon growing up as a kid. 
So my question to you is, what is it like to be married to Optimus Prime? <laughs> <laughs> well, Gary's great. I mean, he <laughs> I met Gary um, back in 1987 on a show called MacGyver. Do you remember MacGyver? Oh, I remember it well. A, well, st a, a stick I, of gum and a toothpick. I was a location manager on MacGyver because, really? as you know, I worked in the show. film industry yeah. for 25 years. And uh, so I, I was always behind the scenes. I was the location manager, the production manager. Uh, Gary was always out there as the actor. And so he, I remember he was there. He actually was on Beachcombers way back oh, in the day. Relic he the, played yeah. a bad guy and oh, yeah. drug dealer and bug, dr drug smuggler. <laughs> um, but Gary had a, has had a great career. He's a, a Hall of Famer and he's got his star down on Granville Street. And um, he was just over in uh, Brentwood Bay on the island doing a Hallmark, you know, Valentine's Day movie or something, and he's yeah. heading out to uh, uh, Calgary again to do Tribal. And in between, he's still doing cartoons. And he's done everything from G.I. Joe to My Little Pony. <laughs> you know, he's got a wonderful range, and he's also a wonderful musician. Yeah. And uh, so, anyhow. Yeah. How long have you been married for? We've only been married for seven years, seven years? Yeah. now, um, but we've been friends for 35 years, pretty much. Yeah. Um, so, Optimus yeah. Prime. Better late than never. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Colleen, this has been really, uh, really a great conversation. Very refreshing. You're very candid. I love your points, and uh, I, I endorse a lot of what you've said. I wish you the best of luck, and I, I'd like to see you get reelected in the next. The next election, of course, is not until next year, if I recall right, 2022. It's October 2022, so we've got a a year and eight months to go. And I'll tell you right now. The only thing that is g g keeping me going is the hope that we're going to be able to turn this ship around in the next election. Um, because I've got two kids. I've now got a two-year-old granddaughter and hopefully more uh, grandchildren coming. And we want to be able to afford to continue living in our hometown. Mm -hmm. And everybody is, everyone I talk to is having tremendous pressure, just trying to be able to afford to keep living and working here. And my daughter's, you know, works in a restaurant. Her husband's a plumber. They're regular people, mm -hmm. and they can't afford to stay here. And I, you know, my analysis is that we, the city, have created this problem, or we've made it worse because of our policies. So we've got to start turning around some of those policies to get ourselves in balance. And if there's one thing I'd like to leave people with as a thought, it is: um, what does the city of Vancouver need to get in balance? Uh, so that it's it's serving the people that live here and yes the people that work here uh, on an ongoing basis into the future because we're out of balance what a great way to end the show and that is a great thought thank you for that Thanks. Colleen Hardwick uh, NPA City Councilor uh, for the City of Vancouver thank you very much for being on the show Thanks. yeah